Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. If you're new here, because everybody else that's been here for the last four months knows what we've been doing, but if you're new here, we've been doing a series that is an overview of the entire Bible called Vistas, and we're almost at the end. In fact, next Sunday, Pastor Raul is going to speak, and when he preaches, he's going to preach on the Revelation. He's going to preach on the Revelation, the book of Revelation, the end. And uh, so this week, I'm going to talk to you uh, from the New Testament letters called the Epistles, and my message is called Love Letters to a bride, love, love letters to a bride, the letters of the New Testament. Now, to set it up, I, I want to say this to you. Um, many times when we read the Bible, and you'll see this in the video that I'm about to show you, but many times when we read the Bible, the reason we have a hard time understanding it is because we view it as one book and one kind of literature. And the Bible is actually 66 different books contained in one book, and those 66 books uh, encapsulate every form of literature and writing known to humanity. And so it's really important that we understand the literary styles of the Bible if we're going to grasp what God is saying to us through the Scripture. So I have a video I want to show you from the Bible Project. It's on the literary styles of the Bible, and I want to roll that right now. Go ahead and show it. The Bible is a collection of many books, telling one unified story from beginning to end. But all those books were written in different literary styles. Yeah, think of it like walking into a bookstore where every aisle has a different kind of literature. There's history or poetry or nonfiction. And when you choose an aisle and pick up a book, you're going to have very different expectations, different things that you're looking for. Right, they're all literature, but they communicate in really different ways. Yes, and so the same thing is true for the Bible. If you don't pay attention to what style it's written in, you will miss out on the brilliance of each book. So what are the main types of literature in the Bible? Well, first and foremost is narrative. It makes up a whopping 43% of the Bible. After that is poetry, which is 33% of the Bible. And then there's what you could call prose discourse, which makes up the remaining 24%. Nearly half the Bible is narrative. Yes, and this is no accident. Stories are the most universal form of human communication. Our brains are actually hardwired to take in information through story. And stories are really enjoyable. Why is that? Well, stories train us to make sense of the seemingly random events that happen in life by taking those events and then putting them in a sequence. And then together you can start to see the meaning and purpose of it all. And what links this all together? Well, good stories always have a character who wants something. And then through these characters, an author can explore life's big questions like who are we or what's really important in life. And a good story always involves some kind of conflict some challenge to overcome, just like in our own lives. And that forces us to think about our own challenges, why there's so much pain or disappointment in the world, and then what can we do about it? And stories usually end with some kind of resolution, giving us hope for our own stories. Since these are Bible stories, are the characters showing me how I should live? Yeah, that's not quite the point. Most Bible characters are deeply flawed. You should not be like them. 
but we are supposed to see ourselves in them, which helps us then see our lives and failures from a new perspective. And without even realizing it, these stories will start to mess with you and change how you see the world and other people and yourself. Now, there are different types of narrative in the Bible. Yeah, there's historical narrative, but also narrative parables, short biographical narratives like the four Gospels. We'll look at all these in later videos. Okay, next up is poetry, which honestly, I don't read a lot of. Yeah, you're like most people. But one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. Yeah, why so much poetry? Well, poems mainly speak through dense, creative language, linking together images to help us envision the world differently. Poems use lots of metaphor to evoke your emotions and your imagination. Lots of fancy language, but wouldn't it be easier just to tell me what I need to know? Well, think about it. In life, we tend to form mental ruts, and we think in these familiar, well-worn paths that are very hard to get out of through logic or reasoning. And what good poetry does is force you off the familiar path into new territory. Sneaky. And there's different types of poetry in the Bible. There's lots of types of songs or psalms. There's the reflective poetry of the wisdom books and then the passionate resistance poetry of the prophets. Okay, the last big literary type is called prose discourse, and it makes up a quarter of the Bible. Yeah, these are speeches, letters, or essays. And the focus here is building a sequence of ideas or thoughts into one linear argument that requires a logical response. Like, hey, have you thought about this thing? You should also consider how it connects to this other thing. And if you do, then you will see that this is the result. And in light of that conclusion, therefore, you should probably stop doing that one thing so that this other thing will be the outcome. So you're persuading me with reason. Yeah, discourse forces you to think logically and consistently and then do something about it. Biblical discourse is found in law collections, in wisdom literature, and the letters written by the apostles. Okay, so each book of the Bible has one literary style. No, actually most books have a primary literary style, like narrative for example, but then embedded in the narrative you'll come across poems or parables or a collection of laws. Every biblical book is a unique combination of literary styles. And to read that book well, I need to be familiar with each literary type and how it works. Yeah, so you know what to pay attention to and what questions you should ask. But before we look at each type, there's one more unifying feature of biblical literature that's really important and really cool. And that's what we'll explore next. Talk about leaving you hanging, huh? It's like, what is it? Oh, I got to watch the other video. Well, we're going to talk about the letters of the New Testament today, the letters that the apostles wrote, like the Apostle Paul, Peter, Jude, James. And we're going to get into some of those letters. And what I really want you to do as you follow along with me today is to put yourself in the story. Because that's really our call as we read the Scripture. It's important that we understand what the original writers were meaning to accomplish, what their intention was. That's interpreting it properly. But then we have to apply it. We have to take the Scripture and figure out how a letter that was written 2,000 years ago applies to where I live right now in Moses Lake, Washington. And that's what we're going to look at today. So I want, want you to put yourself in the story. And I have a great illustration to start written by a guy named Brian Maines. He shares this story. In late 2012, 75-year-old Marion Shirtleff purchased a Bible in a used bookstore near her home in San Clemente, California. So 75-year-old lady goes into a used bookstore and purchases a Bible. After making her purchase and returning home, she discovered a couple of folded pages 
tucked into the middle of the Bible. The contents of the yellowed notebook sheets contained a child's handwriting that looked familiar. To her amazement, Shirtlift discovered her name at the top of the first page. When she looked closer, she realized that she was actually reading a four-page essay she had written as a 10-year-old child to earn a merit badge for the Girl Scouts in Covington, Kentucky, more than 2,000 miles from where she had just purchased the Bible. By her own account, Shirtleff was deeply moved. I opened the Bible, and there was my name, Shirtleff said in a phone interview from her home. I recognized my own handwriting. I was shaking. Literally, I was crying. Although it remains a mystery how the essay ended up in a Bible in a used bookstore halfway across the country, 65 years after she wrote it, one thing is certain. When we look deeply into God's Word, we see evidences of our own lives too. In the pages of Scripture, we see individuals just like us, people who pursue faith and hope in God, people who also battle depression, doubt, lust, and pride. As we read the biblical stories about Abraham, Ruth, David, Mary, and Peter, and on and on, we recognize our own life story. And that's really our call, is to know what the the writer is saying to his original audience, but then to go further and to apply it to our lives. And I'm hoping what I share with you today will help you to do that. So we're going to be talking today about the apostles' teaching And you'll remember this text from last week in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, speaking of the early church, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So the apostles' teaching is what kept the early church on track, kept the early church from getting weird and just being experience-oriented. It continued the tradition of the Old Testament scriptures and began to bring them into a new revelation of what God was doing through Jesus Christ, His Son. Now, the apostles' teaching can be found written out most clearly in the New Testament letters of the epistles. We've been through the entire story of the Bible the last four months, and we've seen that Jesus is central to everything. And now we're going to look at these 22 letters. I'm not going to go through all of them, don't worry. We're going to just take some vignettes from each of them. But we're going to see that these 22 letters that the early apostles wrote that were written to these local churches speak to us about our own life. I love what uh, Drew said last week. We were talking about this message. And he said, you know, when I read the epistles, I see that they were written to help the church. Drew's our music guy, our worship leader that was up here. To help the church through its growing pains. And then Pastor Raul said they were written to remind the bride, the church, about how glorious her groom, her husband, Jesus is. So that's really what we're doing when we look at the scripture. We're seeing a picture of Jesus through the apostles who had a firsthand knowledge of him, who had walked with him, talked with him, had literally, as John said, handled him. They'd touched him. They'd seen that he was alive. They'd experienced life with him. And now they were writing these texts out to bring further clarity as to who he was and what he had accomplished. Amen? So if you're a note taker, how many of you are note takers? Take some notes today because so we're, we're going to be teaching through the scriptures. So here we go. I got to move quickly. First of all, we're going to talk about some of Paul's letters, some of the Pauline epistles as they're called. Some of them were written as Paul was traveling. 
And some of them were written from prison. He was under house arrest, and he wrote several of them. So we're going to see what he has to say. And what I'm going to be doing is telling you a little bit about the letter. And then, after I tell you a little bit about the letter, I'm going to take you to a key verse in that letter, and we're going to talk about it for a minute. So here's the first thing, the book of Romans. We're going to talk about the book of Romans. How many of you ever read Romans before? Romans is a doctrinal treaty. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's maybe his most, <laughs> it's maybe his masterpiece. Um, it's the Apostle Paul's masterpiece. It explains God's plan of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It shows us of the kingdom of God. It shows us how God's salvation works itself out in our life and ultimately produces Christ-likeness. And I want you to see this first text in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And here's the message of it. The good news of Jesus has the power to save us if we believe. So let's read it. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what's this telling us? Paul's not ashamed of this good news. Why? Because in the good news is power. And that power has the ability to rescue people. And when we think of a person being rescued, we're thinking of, Two elements to the rescue. We're being rescued from something, and we're being rescued for something. So what are we being rescued from? We're being rescued from the power of sin, the power of death. We're being rescued from separation from God, from damnation, from destruction, self-destruction. We're being rescued from all those things, but we're being rescued for something. And I think this is really important because many times when people think of what it means to be saved, they just talk about what we're saved from and not what we're saved for. But did you know that you've been rescued for a purpose? You've been redeemed for a purpose. We were slaves to sin. When Jesus paid for our sin with his own blood, he took us from the slave block, but then he gave us a purpose in life, and our purpose is to glorify him. I think that purpose was so beautifully illustrated today when Davy got up here and shared his testimony. He showed us that God didn't just take me from something, because many times people think salvation is about getting a ticket to heaven. And what's so interesting when you read the New Testament is you see very little talk about being saved so you can go to heaven. In fact, I went through, listen to this, I went through the book of Acts and I analyzed all of the sermons of the apostles and what they preached in the early church. And ironically, I couldn't find any sermons that actually spoke about getting saved so you could go to heaven when you died. Now, I think if we're going to look at what the early church had to say about what salvation was, it wasn't just about going to heaven when you die. It was about being redeemed for a purpose on earth now, and it starts now. And it carries over and bleeds into eternity, but it starts right now, amen? Amen. Secondly, 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to confront and correct the young church in Corinth because it was struggling with matters of disunity, immorality, and immaturity. So then Paul 
you know, as he's speaking to them, he comes to this particular text, and it's the one I picked out because it, it really captures something that I think is important for all of us, and that is that when you believe, your body becomes his temple, and you belong to him. Look at this here, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You talk about an unpopular message in this culture. Can you imagine telling Americans that you're, you don't belong to yourself? What do we emphasize all the time in our life in this country? Our rights. It's my right. It's my constitutional right. Now, I don't want to take anything away from your constitutional rights, but I'm going to. But here's the reality. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they come to a cross. They come to that cross where they've been crucified and where their old life has died. And they embrace a new life. And in the midst of laying down that old life and embracing a new life, you're purchased. You're bought. And now you belong to Jesus Christ. That's why we call Him Lord and Savior. See, He's Lord and Savior. Now, we don't understand the concept of Lord in this culture because we don't have lords. But biblically speaking, Lord means master. Think about that for a minute. So you've been purchased and freed to ultimately be owned by the Lord and He comes to live in your body and now your body belongs to Him and you don't really have the right to do what you want to do with your body. You say to the Lord, here's my body, use it for your glory. So if you look at the text within the context, Paul is speaking in chapter 6 about some of the stuff the Corinthians were doing. And they were doing a lot of stuff with their bodies, sexual immorality and other things that were offensive to the heart of God. And God's saying, look, your body's not meant for that. Your body is meant to glorify me. So find ways your body can bring honor and glory to me. Not to yourself, not to your own purpose, not just for your pleasures, but your body belongs to me and I'm filling it. Whoa. I hear... A pin drop in here right now. Obviously, that's not an American-type message, is it? And then we go to 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians, it has such a beautiful revelation of Jesus, but look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and 18. So your body's the Lord, the Holy Spirit fills you. Now 2 Corinthians 5 says this, when you believe, you become a new creation by God's power. Look at what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she, um, the pronoun can mean both, okay, male, female. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So did you know that when you put faith in Jesus Christ and you trusted Him as Savior and Lord and He began to work in your life, you know, maybe it was a process, maybe it was kind of an instantaneous thing, but when that began to happen, God transformed you and worked a miracle in you and that old person that you were with whatever shame that you had or even whatever glory you had, all of that died and passed away. And a new person came to be. 
Now, some of us that have come out of some really dark stuff, you know, like really dark stuff and have had a transforming kind of testimony, we understand that. Like, I can look back in my life and I can say, you wouldn't have wanted to know me when previous Doug lived. But that guy's dead. He's buried. And I can really look in my life and see a demarcation where life came into me. Now listen, if you were raised in the church or maybe you've been you know, a pretty good moral person and you even came to Christ while being raised in the church and you never did all that garbage and all that junk and all that dark stuff, that's also praiseworthy. Thank God you didn't do and have to go through the repair that a lot of us have to go through. Am I talking to anybody? That's a great testimony too. I'm not taking anything away from it. But many times we don't see the demarcation when we've come up in the church. And so we can't say, you know, I used to be this way or I had a life like this and now I'm like this. But the scripture says, it declares boldly that if anyone's in Christ, they're new and the old has passed away. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times I've lifted up that text in my prayer life, and I've been like, you know, almost like I'm telling the devil, and I'm telling myself, because I'm so aware of the garbage I'm still wrestling with, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute, I am new, that's old, this is new, shut up, old man, amen. I have to skip around, I'm never going to get through what I've prepared, so I have to do some skipping here, so... I know, right? Some of you are out there like, okay, whatever. Okay, I'm going to talk about the book of Colossians now. Now, Colossians was a letter that was written while Paul was in, in ha- under house arrest. And it's a letter that gives us the clearest picture in the whole Bible of the exalted Jesus and his rule over all of creation. But it also warns us against dangers which threaten that revelation. Um, and so what we learn there, and this is really powerful, is that because Jesus is not just a man. See, here's something we see. When we look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, really three of them, when we look at the, what are known as the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we really see Jesus. Yes, we see his divinity in there, the fact that he's divine, but mostly we see Jesus as a man operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We see that element of him as servant, as, as a man, as the, as, as the son of man. But, and when we look, get to the gospel of John, we see Jesus in his divinity. But in Colossians, it's like Paul took what John wrote about in, in, in the gospel of John, and now he shines a light on it. He puts a magnifying glass on it, and he says, let me show you what John was really talking about. And this is what Colossians tells us. Look at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. By the way, firstborn doesn't mean he was born. It's a word that means first in order. So he's at the beginning of all the new creation. Verse 16, for by him, look at this, by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now think about that. 
The scripture tells us that Jesus is the purpose, the creator. He is the source and he is the goal. But not only is he the source and the goal of all creation, but he is actually the glue that holds it together. And as you begin to get, you know, as you begin to look at science, for instance, and we we hear, you know, in quantum physics and quantum science that, that, that scientists can't really quite explain what it is in the universe that keeps things adhering together. Because they should kind of fly apart, but they don't. Well, we know according to what Scripture teaches that it's actually the presence of Christ that is holding all of creation together. And we know that He's the first And we know that he's the last, and we know that he is right here in this room, present. And if you've ever gone through a time in your life when you feel like everything's coming apart, you can trust that he will hold you together. Amen? We see after Paul's epistles, and there's many more, what are known as the general epistles, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, Jude, and many people don't realize this revelation is also an epistle. It's apocalyptic literature, it's got some narrative to it, it's got poetry in it, but it's also a letter written to seven churches. But I want to look at James for just a minute, because we've learned that Christ saves us by His work, but now James shows us something different. James' epistle has a well-deserved reputation for providing practical advice. He's really all about how your faith should work its way out and reveal Jesus to people through your character and good works. And so this is what James teaches us. James says, if you have true faith, if your faith is real, you'll have good works. Look at James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what's James telling us? You can tell me all day long that you believe in Jesus Christ, but the thing that will really show that you believe in Jesus Christ will be the accompanying life that follows it. And it will include things like helping people in need, right? And also demonstrating godly character and integrity and ethics. When you're at your workplace, one of the greatest revelations that you're a follower of Jesus Christ is that you show up early or on time, that you do your work well, not just when people are watching you. Am I talking to anybody? Right? That you you excel and you exceed expectations. You don't just do enough to get by. Because it's not just a paycheck, it's your vocation before the Lord. Jesus is your boss. You think your boss is your boss, the Bible says Jesus is your boss, right? And then also, when it's all said and done, you do it with integrity and you do it ethically, right? So that means that you don't cheat, you don't lie, right? You don't get involved in office politics or gossip. You don't talk trash about your boss with your other employees. And if you're a boss... You don't oppress the people that work for you or expect them to work extra hours for nothing. You pay them well. You take care of them well. You don't cut corners so that you don't have to take. See, if you're a Christian, it's going to show. Am I talking to anybody? It's going to come out by your actions, by your works. 
Now, those works don't save you. Those works merely demonstrate you're saved. You see the difference? Okay. And lastly, I'm going to go right to the revelation because I have five minutes. This letter is unique among all the letters. Written to the seven churches in Asia Minor in what is now modern-day Turkey. This letter is what's known as apocalyptic and prophetic literature. Now, before you go apocalyptic, woo, it's the end of the world as we know it, right? And I feel fine. No, that's not good. Apocalyptic doesn't mean scary end of the world. Did you know the word apocalyptic? It's a Greek word. It's where we get the word revelation. Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis merely just means unveiling. That's all it means. It means that the curtain gets pulled back and we see something for what it really is. And so the revelation was written to encourage followers of Christ because they were suffering persecution and martyrdom under the oppressive Roman Empire. There's two views about when it was written. Both views were during the time of a very oppressive emperor, either Nero or Domitian. Now, either way, if it was written during the time of Nero or Domitian, both of them were wicked, wicked people that slaughtered Christians. Nero used to have parties, and on the road to the party, he would hang Christians on crosses, and he would set them on fire, and they would be his light for the road going to the party. That actually happened. So these were wicked men, and John is writing to them after he receives a revelation from God to encourage them in their struggle. He's caught up into heaven. He's given a bird's eye view of the great battle of the ages, and from the grandstand of heaven, he witnesses the victory of Jesus and his people over Satan, Rome, an antichrist figure, a false prophet, and every other enemy that seeks to destroy God's purpose. And God's purpose is to restore humanity and creation, and throughout human history, God has been moving creation toward that end, restoration, redeem it, make it right, heal it, fix it. And there's always been a force in the earth, a number of forces in the earth that have fought against that. And those forces are here today, and they're fighting against that purpose. And they're fighting not just against the big purpose, they're fighting against the people. And you and I are the people. And the fight is still going on. I mean, right now, all over this globe, we have brothers and sisters that are dying. In Iran, in Iraq, in parts of China, in, in other parts of the Middle East and Asia, we have Christians that are actually being imprisoned, losing their homes, losing their jobs, being tortured, and being killed for the sake of the gospel. And so there's still a battle going on in the earth. And Revelation is... The picture of God for the church on overcoming in the midst of that battle. In every generation, Revelation was never written so we could sit around and figure out exactly when the Antichrist is rising and who he's going to be and what does the mark of the beast mean. And it, It's not addressing that. People that read it that way have a wrong interpretive grid. It was never meant to be read that way. It was meant to be read for every generation to know in the midst of their own battle and war that there's an ultimate victory coming, that there's a lamb that's going to conquer a dragon. And not only is he going to, he already has, and he's going to over and over throughout history. That's 
the story of the revelation. For some of you right now, I'm really messing you up, right? In the end, everything is restored, evil is judged, creation is remade, and God dwells among humanity in a new city and a new garden. Amen. Isn't that good news? And I'm just going to show you two texts real quick, and then we're going to end. And the first idea is that the letter of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus. And if you read it that way, you'll understand it better. You see, if you read Revelation just to find out how it's all going to break down in the end, you'll miss the purpose. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. You want to know what the book of Revelation is about? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's break that down. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. The disclosure of Jesus Christ. Right? Stripping off all the stuff. Who is Jesus? And then what's interesting, as you read it, you begin to go through chapter after chapter, and you know what you see? Jesus is overcoming evil. Jesus is conquering. Jesus, as I said, is a lamb overcoming a dragon, overcoming a serpent, overcoming a Babylonian prostitute. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff going on, all these weird creatures, and and yet in the middle of it all, Jesus and his people, though they suffer and die, keep winning, keep winning, keep winning, and then you come to the end of the book, and ta-da, we win. That's the story of the Revelation. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, I hear people all the time say, I don't like to read the, I don't like to read the book of Revelation. It freaks me out. It scares me. All this crazy stuff's going to happen. I avoid it. I don't understand it. And yet the scripture says a blessing remains on those who read it and read it out loud. Wow. How many of you want to be blessed in your life? Go home and read the book of Revelation out loud. But don't go looking for horns on goats and all that. I'm not saying it's there, but don't get caught up in that. Get caught up in Jesus and his people conquering the evil of the world. That's the story. Is that making sense? And by the way, real quick side, the book of Revelation is not the book of Revelations. I hear people all the time say, I love the book of Revelations. It's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's very important. Because it's ultimately one revelation, and the revelation is Jesus. Beautiful. Okay. And lastly, it ends this way. It tells us that in the end, Jesus will restore everything, and we will share in a glorious world with him. Look at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either, either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. You want to know the real important mark? that the book of Revelation shares? 
It's not the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the lamb on the head of the servants of God. That's the real story. Okay, and they will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that's how it starts to wrap up. Now, that's good news. And it's telling us no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets personally, societally, internationally, Ultimately, the lamb conquers the dragon and all of his buddies, and we win. Why don't you stand with me? Amen.